this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. Have you ever wondered about the triggers that make people want to sell their companies? The number one reason business owners decide to sell is that they are proactively approached by an acquirer. They're not thinking about it. They're not planning for it. They just all of a sudden get an inbound inquiry, and it makes them say, hmm, maybe I will sell this company. Maybe I should explore that. The second most common reason people explore the sale of their business is some sort of devastating health scare. Either they personally go through some sort of health event or a spouse, a loved one goes through some sort of stay in the hospital, which causes them to reevaluate things. And that's exactly what happened to my next guest, Dan Bradbury. Dan was in an Ironman race when he had a bicycle accident and hit his head quite badly. In fact, he was so severely injured uh, that he wasn't sure he was going to fully recover his cognitive ability. When he got out, clearly he was ready to sell and ready to sell fast. And I think the determination to sell quickly, as you're going to hear in Dan's story, compromised his negotiating position. And as he tells the story, I want you to just remember uh, and think about how much more powerful, more leverage Dan would have had in the negotiation had he come into it from a position of strength. Had he had what negotiators call a BATNA, a best alternative to a negotiated agreement. In other words, a, a plan B. In Dan's case, He was really committed to selling because he'd had this accident and knew he needed to sell. And that compromised the amount of money he was able to get for his business and also the deal terms. To tell you the story and somewhat of a cautionary story, here's Dan Bradbury. Dan Bradbury, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks so much for having me, John. I'm excited to be here. Well, good. Tell me a little bit about business growth systems. Yeah, um, my my background and passion was marketing, and I I'd, uh, started and grown and and also bought a couple of businesses. And really, my skill set behind all that was was marketing. So business growth systems became a natural outgrowth of that. It, it, it taught marketing to small business owners. And specifically, we'd also do some done for you and help build systems and create marketing systems to help them drive more leads and drive more sales. And it just kind of naturally grew from a, a uh, originally a small training company into um, uh, almost a done for you marketing agency. It, it wasn't really; it was kind of a hybrid. But we served uh, small uh, or small size companies in the UK and across Europe. Got it. And so what would it, what was the business model? How did you charge for your services? Yeah. So, uh, I, because we started out as a training company, our front end was primarily, uh, seminars in that, uh, we, whilst we do lead generation online and lead capture uh, onto all this with kind of in, typical informational products and build relationship, the first point of purchase 
normally, John, was people would come to a introductory seminar. Just, uh, we tested various different sizes of seminar, be it small, little three-hour free workshops up to uh, three-day events for five, six, seven, eight hundred people, um, but all at a low uh, pr price point, up to a few hundred pounds. And that's where we would really, I suppose, show our strategies, our methodology, our philosophy. And that's where we would uh, engage in relationship and uh, and kind of get applicants and uh, and sign people up for ongoing programs. Got it. And so you had the, the kind of front end product in the seminars, uh, and then you were trying to convert them into what uh, uh, sort of ongoing consulting relationships, or what was the what was the conversion? Uh, uh, so there, there was two. Again, we over the years we we tested a few different uh, uh, approaches, and we we ended up with uh, both in the sense of we had we put people into ongoing recurring contracts, either month to month or some uh, some of the more expensive ones were annual recurring contracts, and um, that was purely consulting based. But as we evolved, and especially as it relates to um, the deal we did when we when we exited the company and the earnout tied in with that, we we ended up doing much more done for you services. And what does that mean, done for you? Yeah, good question. So it would mean that um, previously or originally the model was great. They would tell we'd ask lots of questions about their business model. We dis we would help them or consult with them about how. Um, their lead magnet might look or their online advertising or tests uh, test that they needed to run on their website, things like that. But, but uh, over time, more and more people were just saying, look, we wish that you would just um, do this for us. And uh, we, because uh, we, we, to a certain degree, we got frustrated by recommending particular providers or particular particular services, software that people uh, should use, et cetera, to help them with this pr uh, process. And then if the clients fail to make the progress, it'd be frustrating for us if they then subsequently uh, canceled our consulting. So we, we gradually tested uh, doing, doing it for them in the sense of we would still do the consulting, but actually they would pay us additionally for um, uh, writing the sales copy for putting up the landing pages and building the kind of the infrastructure integration into the backend CRM software, things like that. And what, what did you get the, the business up to in terms of, it, you know, its annual revenue? So, um, it, it grew, um, steadily over the years, I think. Um, and I get confused with the timeline because there, there was an earnout where the revenue continued to go up. Um, I think, um, the, the revenue at its peak was um, uh, a little shy of three million pounds sterling, but um, that was after the the deal because um, uh, there was quite a few intricacies around that. I think at the time of the the first exit, it was um, it was about half a million pounds, which well the, the exchange rates uh, been all over the place in that time, but at the t at the time I think it was about nine hundred thousand dollars. Got it. Okay, so you've got the business up to to almost a million in sales. Um, what what triggered you to want to sell? I mean, it seems like a fairly early stage company to 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 sell. It was. It really was. I, I think that uh, in many respects, I, I had. I think there was two things. I mean, firstly, I, truthfully, I'd kind of plateaued a little bit for a, for a couple of years. The business had grown quickly, and then it had um, through the recession. Um, and then it had plateaued mainly because I'd taken my eye off the ball and had got involved. I'd bought 
I'd bought a couple of other companies and I'd got distracted and I was trying to, I suppose, have my cake and eat it. Um, and therefore, I kind of got a little bit frustrated. But the real trigger, John, was um, I had a very serious accident. I was a uh, triathlete and I was competing in a Ironman triathlon. And uh, I'd, well, it was my, my second Ironman and I was underprepared, <laughs> undertrained, and I was, I, I was pushing it really hard on the, on the bike leg and my, uh, 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 the tire on my bike burst and it flung me head first into a tree on a fast downhill stretch. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I don't have any memory of this, but I, I ended up in a hospital, in in, uh, in and out of coma with uh, bleeding on the brain, um, uh, uh, quite literally uh, brain damage. And it took me uh, seven months to kind of re rehabilitate. And that's from, from at the beginning, I had <laughs> memory like a goldfish. And, uh, uh, but I had to relearn how to use a computer, a whole host of different things. Um, and it, it took me about three or four months before I was quote unquote normal for those people that didn't know me, but it took me about, um, a little over seven months to, to get back to what I would consider normal. So in that kind of window, I had a lot of time to convalesce and, and kind of just reflect. And I was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, well, without being too dramatic, John, there, there was a moment early in that, uh, time period when I thought that um, uh, I wasn't going to recover. Like my my mental faculty was so poor, I actually thought that you know what I I'm I'm not that far away from just being put in a put in an inst institution, and it being a permanent disability. And, and the uh, you know the uh, doctors I I did, couldn't really follow them at the time to be really cognizant of what they were saying. But that in effect they were saying we don't know the the recovery path. We don't know. We, we, we just don't know whether he's going to make it. So as I was recovering, uh, in some respects, I was lucky because I had no debt and um, uh, I'd uh, had a little bit of money set aside. But I had a young family and uh, I uh, went, holy crap, you know, I've been a high earning entrepreneur for for about 10 years at that point. And yet in relative terms, John, I'd made a lot of money, but I hadn't. Uh, my family weren't set for life, and it occurred to me that if I was, um, if I hadn't made it, um, that would have been, uh, especially if I'd been long-term disabled, that would have been um, uh, intolerable for my family. And so, consequently, I said, you know what, I'm done. I, I, I need to put some money in the bank. I need to uh, put myself on a more um, secure, stable footing because I'm, I'm still living like I'm 20 years old in the sense of, uh, you know, I'd happily try crazy things. I'd invest in crazy things. And I was, I was living a little too fast and loose. And I decided to uh, lock things down and shore up the ship. Yeah. Wow. Well, glad that you recovered. I, I, uh, very scary experience. Interesting. When we talk to entrepreneurs about the triggering event that causes them to want to sell, uh, it, it oftentimes comes down to, uh, some sort of health scare. You know, like in your case, it was for you personally. Uh, in a lot of cases, it's it's you know a spouse um, that that gets sick and they realize that that life is short, and so it's, it's interesting. In your case, I mean, this is a kind of a silly little question, but I'd be curious: Did you have disability insurance? Like, what would have happened if you hadn't recovered just financially? Did did you have insurance? Yeah, good question. I so so I was lucky in that I did. Um, albeit I found the constraints of that insurance uh, because of uh, head injuries, 
different. They call it the hidden disability um, uh, because it's not very obvious. It affects people in ways where that are unforeseen. So it's not like, oh, you know, I've been paralyzed or I've lost a function of my legs or, you know, I've lost, lost my arm in an accident. It was very um, subjective in, the, the, in terms of, well, my attention was poorer. My concentration was poorer. About how do you measure that? And it, it took a long time um, fighting with the insurance company to, to, to get the payout. And even then, um, to be honest, John, I was lucky to have any policy uh, because I was, again, just a bit reckless and kind of felt um, at that time I was just um, indestructible. And the only reason I had a policy which had a very modest um, amount to it in relative terms is because I had a friend who was a financial who'd signed up as a financial advisor and he was testing out his sales pitches on his friends and family, of which I was one. So I ended up with a, uh, you know, the, the lowest possible um, cover for uh, uh for disability or um yeah for uh, disability type insurance so i did get a payout um which was helpful but in in many respects um that's what kind of drove the point home because my all my businesses um i had three at the time um all of them took a big hit when i was seven months out because even though some were less dependent or, or one in particular was less dependent on me than others, uh, they all had a high level of dependency on me and therefore they, they were hurt pretty badly. And, um, you know, the, the, the losses or the money that I didn't make in that time period uh, weren't even covered by the insurance payout. So in some respects, I was, I was lucky. But at the same time, um, well, put it this way, I, 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 I'd like to think I've got things much more in order now. <laughs> Good. Well, let's talk about the actual sale of the business because I, I, I get why you wanted to sell it. Um, but what did you what did you actually do as your next step? I mean, did somebody approach you? Did you did you hire an intermediary to represent you? What was your next action once you decided you wanted to sell? Well, it was interesting. One of the um, first uh, a books that had been recommended to me that was uh, uh, on my bedside table, but I hadn't read it at the time of the accident, was Built to Sell. <laughs> um, uh, and I'd uh, so the, the, the topic was clearly on my agenda, and I love learning and I love business, and I recognized that I could, even though I had bought a couple of companies at that time, in, in relative terms, they were much smaller deals and um, uh, I still had a lot to learn. And as I was recovering, when I when I kind of got the ability to read back, and well, certainly the ability not to read more than a page without instantly forgetting what it said, uh, one of the first books I read was Built to Sell, and I, that just kind of enthused me. And then I had a friend who was very experienced with M&A activity, and I went, hey, um, uh, uh, his name's Jeremy, and said, Jeremy, can you help me? And Jeremy kind of took a look and it was one, uh, it was this business particularly that I wanted to sell. Um, and he went, Dan, you've got a problem. The, this business is too dependent on you. Um, he said, the only way you're going to sell this thing is if you make it so it's not dependent. So he said, the first thing I would do if I was in your shoes is acquire a competitor and feel, feel you know, find a way to replace yourself. So, so having had that conversation um, I, I made a list of all the competitors that I could think of, uh, and I went down the list, and I, I actually went on the acquisition hunt, um, and uh, I, I kind of saw I was trying to seek people for a for acquisition merger, and either really, I was trying to figure a way to make myself big enough 
the, the company would have a higher multiple because it would be seen as more stable rather than this company at this time. You know, the revenues were small, but the biggest risk, which would just destroy the multiple, was in real terms, John, there wasn't much of a business um, if it wasn't for me. And, that, and that's what I had to fix. So the way that I chose to solve that problem was uh, acquiring a competitor. But but you had not enough money to like. Where did you get the money to hire, to to acquire a competitor if you didn't even have enough money? Yeah, no, good, good question. Well, um, it, fortunately, the the the, the friend uh, was his particular expertise were, was in distressed acquisitions, and he was very creative at structuring. Uh, no money down deals. So I'd had him kind of bending my ear a little bit. And I, I actually went to a, um, a friend really in the industry who I knew really well and, and pitched him on, hey, how, how about we merge? Because I, I can sell this thing. Um, and uh, you, know, you know what? I, I know what I'm going to do and we can build this up together and sell it. So why don't we merge our companies together? And I knew his particular expertise uh, were, again, in sales and marketing. And even though they were my kind of core expertise, I, I was also more experienced on the financial side. So I kind of positioned it as, hey, we merge our companies together. Um, he had a, a good sales team, uh, which I didn't have a sales, a real sales team at that time. Um, so we, in many respects, we had complementary. We were serving the same market, but we had complementary assets in the terms of the team and the structure. And I said, look, combine will be much greater than the sum of the parts. Let's do this thing and I can, I can build it up. So in effect, it was a merger with um, uh, no money uh, changed hands. So there were a few intricacies which made it, um, uh, I had to lure him in. So a little bit of money, but in the big scheme of things, it was a merger. So we just put our companies together and uh, put them under the, moved them all under the same company structure. Out of interest, how did you value your company and his company bringing them together? You know what? Ultimately, um, we, uh, there wasn't a strict model. We, you know, we didn't do discounted cash flow, you know, because of the nature of the size of the uh, businesses, you know, when you do the adjustments for owner benefits, it, it was a little, it was a little hinky, uh, frankly. So, uh, in effect, how it was split was proportionately based upon differences in size of revenue. Um, and even though my company was small, his was his was a little bit smaller still. And so we we took the previous twelve month time period, or I think I took my previous twelve months prior to my accident. Um, so the complete financial years, uh, and we kind of said, okay, I understand your business model. You understand mine. We understand each other's cost structures identically. So perfect. So the easiest way to compare like for like was on a revenue basis and on on, on a number of clients and the, the revenue and the contracts from those clients' basis. And we split we split it proportionally according to that. Got it. And so take me to the next stage when you actually sold the combined entity. Yeah, well, well th this was fascinating because whilst um, uh, uh, Nick was probably, uh, that was the person who I merged with, um, was the, uh, I'm going to say more day-to-day -day running. I, I immediately focused on being more strategic. Um, and I uh, then once we'd got the combined entity, 
I went out and made a list of people who I thought who I could see could get significant value from us. And the um, uh, I made a I, I made a list of one person who effectively was in the trade in a slightly different market, but I knew he could get significant value uh, from our customer base. He was a franchise or effectively selling business franchises uh, to small business owners, um, and uh, in the marketing space, um, one was a um, it was a uh, an entrepreneurial kind of social um, network. Um, and, oh, I, I've just forgotten one. It's just come back into my head. I also approached a, um, or was approached by somebody who was looking to, who, who was also a franchisor that was looking to um, create a specific business coaching type franchise that he felt that he could mold us into. Um, uh, and they were the three that I approached first. Um, and they, they weren't uh, they weren't the uh, the company I ultimately sold to. But I approached them first, and I, I in effect I got one. Yeah, we're interested, but couldn't get it over the line. Another guy was uh, in effect a waste of time. Um, didn't want to uh, wanted to have zero risk. I no money in the deal and take it later. So we kind of dropped that one. And uh, th there was somebody in the trade that made a just a uh, a lowball offer that was just um, uh, it w I didn't take offense, but it was almost hard not to take offense because in effect he it was an asset strip in the sense of he kind of went well okay I'll give you X for the database and then I'm going to milk the database for all that's worth so you know if you're not that bothered. If you're done, because a lot of people in my space knew about my accident and therefore they, in some respects, this was very soon after the acquisition that I got on this trail. So so this is less than a year after my accident. Um, uh, he said, well, you know what, if you want a bit of cash just to kind of walk away, great, here you go. Um, but, but that wouldn't have stacked up with my um, obligations for my business partner, Nick, uh, because the way that we'd structured the deal was – it sounds a little bit funny, but if you if you bear with me, this in effect was how it was structured. I went, all right, Nick, you know, so no money down. However, uh, it it was actually a merger straight out, but it was kind of framed like an option, i.e., Nick, I'm going to exit. For, uh, I said, Nick, how much do you want for your company? And he said, X pounds. And I went, great, I'm going to give you X pounds. Um, here's how we're going to do it. You're, we're going to roll these together and we're going to build it up. In the, uh, we agree that we're going to split it on these ratios. And then when, when we exit, um, you know, you're going to get um, at least X pounds, which was your original valuation. So, so that's how I kind of got him into the deal. And then we went out shopping or I went out shopping and or trying to entice people. And I, I wasn't really making much traction. Um, until all of a sudden, one day, when I was a bit frustrated, John, I, I kind of went, I I'm missing a trick. One of our revenue streams that we had, um, that we both had, both companies that were now merged into one had, was we both uh, sold a particular or resold a particular uh, piece of marketing software. 
Um, we both, both Nick and I thought this was great software. We both used it and had used it to build our respective companies. And we recommended it to a lot of our clients because we found it a useful platform to use. No, I think, uh, I, think and we, I think when we talked about it, you didn't want to share the name, but for folks who are listening, uh, you know, think of companies like Infusionsoft or HubSpot or Eloqua or MailChimp or Constant Contact. These are all custom companies with a software platform that helps you to market. And oftentimes they use resellers. And, and so if you're trying to get your head around what a marketing software would look like, those would be some examples. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. So there's there's quite a lot out there in the marketplace, but both Nick and I felt this one was was um, good, strong. We've used it, so it was natural to endorse it for our uh, to our clients. And we both had a uh, secondary um, income stream or a supplementary income stream from from uh, commission from uh, from selling this software. So we had a good relationship. And I went, oh, why don't you know? Why don't I approach them? Because as an additional backstory. John, uh, they had uh, uh, this particular company had been trying to penetrate the UK for many years. They had a reasonable customer base, but they were um, uh, they were bigger in uh, back in the United States. And they uh, they I think tried one acquisition in the UK that had failed, and they'd also tried kind of setting up a remote office in the UK, and I believe that had failed as well. And, and because I was a uh, reseller, uh, a partner. Um, I was aware of these facts and I had a, a pretty good relationship. And a few times I, I happened to know one of the um, uh, co-founders of this company quite well. And a few times he semi-jovially tried to entice me to work for them. You know, I kind of said, well, you know, Dan, if you're ever tired and you want to move to the States and you ever decide to jack this thing in, let me know. I'll give you a job. And I kind of respectfully said, well, you know, I, I thank you, but I've got a business here and I've got a uh, young family here, so that's not going to happen. So, so I went and approached this company and said, hey, let's uh, let's talk. And they said, yeah, no, we're not we're not interested. And I, uh, and this is when I'd um, uh, got clever. And I know many of your guests, because I listen to your uh, podcast uh, a lot, John. And I know many of your guests have, have said similar things. Uh, which is uh, the importance of having a multiple horse race in the sensors. I, I wasn't far down the line. So I knew that this company valued their relationship with me because I was, um, you know, a, a, a good partner for them and uh, resold some of their uh, software. So I said, well, look, I said two things. I said, first of all, you need to be aware that I am looking to get out. And if I do a deal with one of these other companies that's, uh, that's at the table at the moment, that I'm in early stage conversations with, then then that probably means um, uh, I'm going to be cut off from you as a source of new customers in the UK. So were you threatening that that you were in conversations with his direct competitors or with just some other, you know, other potential acquirers that would would cut him out of the deal? Uh, the, the latter. So the, there was no threat. It wasn't a direct competitor, and I didn't allude to as such, uh, but it, it was, I believe, factual in the sense of the acquiring, uh, the potential acquiring companies, uh, none of which, uh, maybe one of the three that I'd mentioned, might have carried on the relationship with this uh, marketing software company, uh, but the other two definitely wouldn't have. Therefore, they would have effectively lost me or my business as a partner. So uh, I felt what I said was just factual. I didn't try and do it aggressive. I just said, hey, I want you to be in the loop. 
And um, th that, that, that kind of got their attention, but not enough. And then I realized that, that I could, I was playing with a relatively weak hand, John, in that the business still was um, recovered from a, a big hit. And even with the acquisition and the nature of that deal, it was still in many respects weakened. And you could argue it was still in many respects tied to me. So I decided to take my greatest weakness and use it as my greatest strength. So I went, I went to this uh, founder and said, look, I said, um, uh, you and I have, uh, uh, you know, you wanted me to come and work for your company. Okay. Well, you know, when I, because of the nature of this company, not only will we be cut off from you as a partner, but I, I also am going to be tied in for a, a period of time. I said, you want me to come and work for your company. You've mentioned this before. I, 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 could, I believe I can really help your company in the UK, but the way you're going to get me to work for you is by buying my company. And so, in effect, even though I was selling my company, John, I was actually selling myself. And I said, look, it's kind of like a package deal. Take it or leave it. You know, you can effectively use me as you will uh, with the company under your control. Or unfortunately, um, you know, uh, this opportunity might slip from your grasp. And I don't think it was the thought of them losing me from their grasp that convinced them, John. I think it was the fact that um, they were very aggressive uh, in a very aggressive growth phase um and they were um uh, they to us uh, many respects had rapid growth in the us but that's where they'd started so they were seeking you know the board was seeking significant growth in other countries and because it's an obviously an english-speaking country the uk was uh, was one of the natural places for that um and and they've been frustrated um, a couple of times before. So all of a sudden they went, well, hold on. And then somebody connected the dots and said, well, hold on, we could effectively acquire this revenue. And if the deal structure is right, then we can acquire this revenue. We can make it accretive. So it, you know, effectively pays itself. And as part of the deal, they had recognized, I think that both Nick and I had been able to sell their software, but it was always a second thought for us. It wasn't a primary focus. Therefore, they knew they had a proven track record that we could sell it much more aggressively. You raise an interest. You raise an interesting word there. I want to make sure people people heard it. Uh, you, you said accretive, and so let's say there's a company out there uh, that is trading on the stock exchange, or they've raised money in the in the institutional markets for let's just make a number up twenty times uh, EBITDA, and they buy you for eight times EBITDA. The moment they transplant your revenue and, and, and profits onto their uh, P&L, the deal is accretive, meaning they're going to get 20 times for your eight times. So that, that essentially, it doesn't cost them anything. In fact, it, they can make money by acquiring companies. If it's the other way around, in other words, they buy you for eight times and they're trading at six times, it's not accretive. So you might hear that that term accretive. You know that when a deal is accretive, it, it's the, the, the buyer is going to be more motivated than if it is not accretive. Thanks for raising that. I don't think we've ever heard that word before on the show, but it's a good one. Right. Well, I, I remember I, I heard it for the first time in this context of this deal when I was getting advice from from, from a from a mentor. He, he used that exact term. And he said, "Look, Dan, this is a software company that's you know looking for an IPO, etc. And you know this is how the, these guys are playing the game. So bear this in mind." 
and that, and that's exactly the line that I went in to sell because they were uh, after revenue growth. So ballpark, ballpark. What were what were they trading at in terms of? You mentioned they were pre-IPO. So what were they raising money at? What kind of valuations? Um, good question. Um, so they they'd had um, at that time. I think they'd had two significant rounds of VC funding. I don't know is the straight answer what multiple that they were uh, as in what valuation that was based on. Mm. Um, uh, what I do know is in just in um, logical terms um, is that from knowing the the SaaS space, software as a service space, that it, it was definitely stacked the right way. You know, I, effectively, I had a a typical small business valuation, and these guys were in uh, a much bigger size, you know, uh, a hundred million dollar company. So they and they, the rounds that they'd raised had been from major um, uh, houses, you know, from from the bank capitals, from the from from the major institutions. So therefore, I know enough to know that. The multiple was significantly, I suppose, stacked in their favor. So the very definition of what we're just talking about with it being accreted. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you you got this conversation going with the CEO. Um, where did it go from from there? Did they make an offer? Did did you sort of put a, a number on the table? Uh, yeah. So that they 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 were. Clever uh, uh, in that they were very cautious, saying no, no, no. And I just said, look, guys, I really would rather do this deal with you. Let's uh, let's figure this out. And I was um, uh, I was very clear that, that this needed to happen now. And I knew them from my relationship with them because of their nature of their growth cycle. Every quarter they would come beating down the doors of their partners, pushing for sales because they were always trying to trying to go up to the board with this growth, this growth, this growth. And it was coming up for a quarter end. Um, well, it was probably mid-quarter at this point. And I said, look, guys, you can book this, you can book this now. And they, they immediately started asking questions about what the revenues were this quarter. And, uh, and they, they were clearly trying to do the math, which to me seemed crazy, but different people have different objectives and different big picture. They were after revenue. They were after revenue growth. And they were after, okay, if we do this, how quickly can we book this revenue? And simultaneously, and probably more importantly, they were saying, okay, good. If we find a way to do this, how quick can we turn the engine on? Right? How can you quickly can you realign to sell more of our software um, so we can get more customers? And so uh, in many respects, it's, it sounded a bit weird and alien to me that there was very little focus on profitability. I mean, they did ask, ask questions and they, they knew the nature of the business and they saw financials, but there was very, very little conversation about that. So I just then started putting the pressure on saying, look, guys, I, I'm going to have to, we need to lock this down and make it exclusive because I've got other people at the table that I don't want to be disrespectful to. Now, truth be told, they weren't that far down the line and I certainly wasn't in danger of breaching, um, you know, I, I hadn't signed an insert any periods of exclusivity or anything like that. And I don't think any of those were even that immediately forthcoming, but I perhaps implied that um, uh, we needed to get this locked down to, so I would commit to them for the period. So that they gave me a letter of intent. Um, uh, they'd asked some questions about um, 
you know, what I wanted and what that meant. And I tried to make them put the first figure down. But, um, and I wouldn't say that I threw a number down, but they dug enough that they probably had an idea for what I was looking for. And, um, and what was that, Dan? Ultimately, what were, what were you looking for? Yeah, so it, it was um, uh, it was a seven-figure number, but a, lo- a low seven-figure number. In terms of a multiple, um, it was um, it, it, it was about five times. Five times EBITDA. It was about it was about yeah yeah five times EBITDA, um, and um, it, it, that's what I uh, I think rather than the the practicality of what it was worth. I, I didn't know then what I know now. And if I'd listened to your podcast more and I'd read more of the old material and I'd studied the value builder system, well, it didn't exist back then, John, but uh, if I'd studied it, I, I would have approached things differently. I, I, I think that they weren't buying in a traditional valuation method. They, it was a strategic purchase. You know, it wasn't a financial purchase at all by any stretch of the imagination. It was a strategic purchase so they could further their company's ambitions internationally, specifically in my case in the UK. That was the desire. That was the um, uh, that was the ambition, and um, uh, therefore, in a multiple terms, uh, that's not. Well, to a certain degree, that's how I came up with the number. But I also think, to a degree, my ego was involved, John, and I wanted to get over the line from a. Uh, there was something about making it into seven figures uh, that just, um, which is a bit pathetic to admit it. Uh, but back then, that 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 was a big indicator for me. And the, the 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 gentleman, the senior VP there who handled the deal was a smart guy. He was a very smart guy because he he structured the deal because he said he went down. How much cash do you need? Um, I, I, and he built up a great degree of trust out with me. And I, I was pretty transparent about what I me- needed. And I said, well, look, look I'm, I'm looking for X to secure my family's future. That's what I need to kind of pay off my mortgage and, you know, et cetera. And that's what, I, that's what I'm looking for because they knew about my accident, et cetera. And uh, they went, okay, great. They went, well, we're prepared to pay, you know, X. Uh, it was a little bit less than the cash amount that I wanted, which was le- less than a million, by the way. I was very factual and like it was a mid six figure number. And um, uh, he said a little bit less, but here's what we're going to suggest. We're going to split up the deal. And they basically split up the deal, uh, John, based upon approximately a third in cash, a third in stock, um, and a third in uh, earnout. But the earnout was the most interesting part of the deal. I mean, the, the reason why they wanted to have a third in stock, um, uh, John, is because they wanted to sell me on the long-term vision of the company. Because really, they, in many respects, they were buying me as an employee. And they wanted to engage me for the long term. So they, they gave me the stock, but it was also vested over multiple years, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the most interesting part of the deal was the earnout. The earnout wasn't based upon the financial performance of the underlying company. It was based upon... Um, the number of new customers I acquired for their software. I think that's great. I want to explore that as an earnout structure because it's 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 certainly somewhat unique. Um, when you talk about five times earnings, am I assuming that the five times earnings number, uh, inc- like a third of that was cash, a third of it was stock, and a third of it was earnout? If you hit the earnout number, you would have it all all up. You would have achieved uh, an outcome of about five times earnings. Correct. Got yes. it. 
That's exactly that's exactly that's exactly right. The, there was an interesting nuance, though, um, John, uh, uh, and I'll let you steer me where where, where you want to dig, and I'll I'll tell you whatever whatever you want. But what was interesting was how the earnout bit was structured. Was they ultimately said we want as many new customers as possible. We want as many new customers uh, as you can get. And we had a long debate. A lot of the debate was, well, how big is your database? You know, you've sold this many historically based upon these measurements. How many do you think you could sell if you went full tilt and it was your primary focus? And in effect, we'd debated and come to an estimate of in a 12-month period, how many new customers of their software we could drive. And that is how the earnout uh, element was structured. But it, but what made it really interesting is it was uncapped. So they'd said, and I, I, I'll just make up the maths to make it simple. So let, let's say that um, uh, it was a little bit more complicated than this, but for simplicity, let's say they went, okay, you can get 500 customers. Okay, good. And we're half a million uh, uh, apart. Great. Well, we're going to give you $1,000 uh, per uh, customers. So if you get the 500 you say you're going to get, then you'll get half a million dollars, which will make the, the the deal complete, as it were. But the reason why that was um, interesting, uh, John, and a win-win is because ultimately they were only buying the deal, so it needed to be structured heavily in terms of um, in terms of earnouts. Um, and uh, but consequently, they got myself and Nick all bought in. Like as and we we went fully loaded after this target, and we we didn't just reach the target; we actually surpassed it uh, relatively significantly. Um, and so consequently, we actually got more money than we would have gotten if I suppose I suppose the deal had been all cash. But they would argue quite correctly that if they hadn't structured the deal that way, they wouldn't have got the outcomes that they wanted ultimately, which was driving their under. Uh, uh, the underlying kind of customer base, which was driving their valuation. You mentioned in the beginning that Nick had a number that he wanted for his business when he first started the discussions. And you said, look, look, I'm going to help you get that number. And here's how we're going to do it. Uh, what was the number? And, and were you able to deliver for him in the end? Uh, so, yes, I think um, if you ask him now, Nick's still a friend. Um, uh, we don't work together now, but he's still a friend. I've spoken in the last couple of weeks. Um, I, I, I believe if he was on here now, he would say, well, he definitely hit his number. The way that we ended up hitting it was different than he originally expected. Because, of course, when he gave me the number, which was, uh, um, it, well, it was a six-figure it was a six figure number. I, I'm bound that I couldn't say the exact number, but I'm sure he'd be comfortable with me saying that. Um, he, would, of course, meant it in the sense of all cash. Um, and um, he didn't get it all cash in one go up front, but he got split into the deal. So he got cash, he got he got uh, a stock, and he got um, he got earnout. Um, and uh, we effectively the earnout element was split um, uh, on the same kind of ratio. So it was more weighted to me than him, considering what we originally brought to the table. But he ended up making. A um, a significant proportion, about eighty percent more than his original valuation. But you could argue, yeah, but he had to put he had to put in a lot more sweat to to get that eighty percent more. Yeah, kind of. I, I understand. When we talk about the third that was in stock, you mentioned there was a vesting schedule. I think people would be interested to know about 
uh, about the structure of that. So um, when you say a vesting schedule, meaning you, you couldn't immediately turn around and sell the stock, you had to hold it for a period. What were the liquidity options on that stock? I mean, how would you have sold it? Had it not IPO'd and there'd be a public market for the stock, what were the mechanisms through which you could actually sell the stock? Or were there any? Uh, in effect, no. In effect, some people would say, and, and my um, lawyer actually advised me not to do the deal um, uh, because there was a, it was uh, four years. Um, uh, so the, 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 the shares vested over four years, but there was a first year cliff. In other words, I, could, I didn't even uh, own any of the stock. It was basically a, a commitment that they were going, going to give me uh, uh, stock over this time period. Um, and the first year was a cliff. So effectively, there was zero until day 365. And then I got the first 25% of those shares are vested. And now they're mine and I own them, et cetera. Um, and then it was monthly, incrementally over the uh, over the three years um, uh, following that. Um and the um, at the time, uh, well, it, it was there was a, a whole host of restrictions that basically made it um, uh, well. Let's say for simplicity, you wouldn't be able to sell the stock. You could, but you know they had the right to block it, etc. So they could just deny you. You had to get board approval for for selling selling the stock. So, in many respects, John, um, uh, it was a punt on my part in that. Theoretically, uh, you know, when I listen to this podcast and you talk about almost don't take an earn out or a theme that I've heard a few times is people saying don't take an earn out unless you're happy with the what you're offered on day one. Well, in many respects, I was much more comfortable with the earn out element because there was a high degree of trust and an established relationship with this company. So um, I, 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 I was confident that I could meet the criteria. No numbers were going to be fudged because either people bought their software or they, or they didn't. And I would know who did that. Um, but the, the, it, so in many respects, the stock part of the deal was mentally I was approaching it like the earn out. Right? As in, am I comfortable with this without any stock? And the answer was yes. Um, because of what I'd been through, I, I was mentally done. And I, I think if I, if I hadn't done this deal to kind of reinvigorate myself, I was, yeah, the, the future didn't look bright for the, the company. And then I figured, you know what, if this stock ended up being worth a significant amount of uh, money, then that, that, was, that, that was the gravy. That was, in many respects, my earn out portion. Got it. That's helpful. So you, you, you know, the the traditional way we might think about an earnout, you were thinking about it slightly differently because you felt so confident in it. Just to finish up this conversation around the stock uh, options themselves, um, you mentioned there was this this kind of vesting schedule. Was that contingent on any anything in particular? I'm assuming it was contingent on you staying employed by the company. Were there other stipulations like you had to hit a specific? sales threshold or or is it just if you're still employed by the company on day 366 you get them yeah so it, it, it was a bit of both so the majority of it was just yeah as long as we've got this deal and you're working with us then that then that vests and even when i stopped working for the company which was about um uh, a year um about a year later um, uh, we agreed as part of the exit uh, that I was going to get a, a consulting agreement, which would mean all that stock continued to vest. Um, but there the was a few, a smaller amount of it was 
based upon hitting certain incentives or actually said a better way that the original agreement was just based on me continuing to, to work with them. But they threw some additional incentives on later down the line when we were in the earn out period saying, if you hit this target, we'll give you the, these this additional um, stock. Got it. Got it. Well, what a fantastic story and an interesting one. And again, I think the what I find particularly interesting is the way these deals get structured is never plain vanilla. There's always a nuance. There's always some creativity. In your case, uh, sounds the sounds like there was something. Uh, there were a few things that were were unique. Uh, Dan, where do people reach you? What what's the best way for people to find out about you and 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 uh, get in touch? Uh, uh, thanks, John. Uh, well, the easiest way is my website's just myname.com. So danbradbury.com. Uh, I'm on, you know, Facebook and uh, Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the easiest way to get in touch is just danbradbury.com. And my email, rather imaginatively, is dan at danbradbury.com. <laughs> dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.